0: Hey everybody, just to set the stage. This video was recorded last year in Portugal and was recorded in person. So please keep that context in mind on the timing of certain things we talk about. I also want to thank Seth for his time to make this interview happen and everyone else who's tuning in. Enjoy the interview. All right. Hello, Seth. We are in Lisbon, Portugal, and we just finished up MoneroCon and it's great to have you here, man.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm I'm really excited to, to get a chat a bit and it's been a A blast for a weekend, getting to spend two days talking about Monero, talking about privacy, philosophy behind privacy as well, and um, just getting to hang out as well. So looking forward to chatting.
0: Absolutely. And so you're talking about privacy in Monero. So why don't we just start with this? Because our community is very privacy and security focused, not Mm -hmm. necessarily cryptocurrency focused. Mm -hmm. Um, Your handle for everything is Seth for Privacy. So do you mind explaining who you are, what you do, and how privacy ties into the cryptocurrency world?
1: Yeah. So... uh, a lot of the reason why I am in the privacy space at all is actually because of jumping into cryptocurrency. Um, I got into Bitcoin and then ultimately Monero, honestly, just to make money, like just wanted a, a kind of penny stock that I could make money off of. Um, but thankfully, the community around the Monero project is very, very, uh, very aligned and focused on user privacy um, and on approachable user privacy, and obviously with a bent towards financial privacy. Um, but because they're so laser focused, when I got involved in that project and um, started to just talk talk to people, chat with people on IRC, all the different platforms they were on, um, they started pointing out that not only do we need privacy within cryptocurrencies, um, but obviously the more important thing generally is, is broader personal privacy. Um, and things like Monero, while they're immensely valuable tools, and I, I think that more people in the privacy space need to understand that financial privacy is a very difficult aspect of things, and tools like Monero can be a a great solution for that. Um, It's only one piece of our toolkit. So it it helped me not only start with seeing why within cryptocurrencies, being able to transact privately and without uh, central uh, parties or anybody who could uh, censor transactions, that's only one piece of the the broader toolkit. So they kind of helped me start down a privacy journey. Um, But now really my, my focus is more broad than cryptocurrency and I try to do what I can around um, kind of pro-privacy content, education, um, my own podcast, Opt Out, which is very much uh, personal privacy and self-sovereignty focused. Um, we hit on things like Bitcoin and Monero for sure, but a broader focus on, uh, on, on personal privacy. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, a quick intro, kind of how I got here a little bit and how Monero relates to my own personal story.
0: I love that. And so I think probably a big question people are going to have right off the bat for you then is why Monero? Because I think a lot of people believe, especially even maybe in our community, that Bitcoin might be private enough. Um, So what drew you to Monero specifically and why would you recommend Monero as a privacy tool and not Zcash or any of uh, these other cryptocurrencies?
1: Yeah, I I think it's tricky to to walk through all the different cryptocurrencies and all the things that they promise. So a lot of times people take one of two routes. They either just latch on to one cryptocurrency, usually that's something like Bitcoin, that's well known, well well understood, um, and just ignore everything else, or they just kind of toss out the baby with the bathwater with the cryptocurrency and see all of the scams and problematic projects and false marketing and all the things that go on that are problematic and and just get rid of everything. Um, But why... I focus on Monero as someone who I've spent a lot of time in the cryptocurrency world, but I don't really like the cryptocurrency world. Like it's not a it's not a space I enjoy being in much of the time, um, but I think it's an immensely valuable one for some of the reasons I mentioned um, just a minute ago. But Monero specifically, why I think it's a, an immensely powerful tool is because it makes financial privacy and financial self-sovereignty very approachable. Um, so just like a lot of the the privacy tools that we know and love, things like Proton Mail, things like Signal, things that you can switch to using those instead of a, um, a surveilled, centrally controlled system. Um, you can switch to using things like Proton Mail and Signal with very little loss to convenience, um, but you get strong default privacy guarantees with tools like those. Um, and I really view Monero as a, a similar tool where you don't need to understand how cryptocurrencies work. You don't need to understand how. Uh, privacy on a blockchain works. You don't need to understand deeply uh, network level anonymity or any of these things to be able to use Monero and gain strong financial privacy. Just like when you onboard your grandma to Signal, you're not explaining to her how triple ratchet encryption works. Like she, she doesn't need to know that, it doesn't matter because she gets it without any extra hoops. She's able to, to get that strong encryption and you're able to chat with her without her having to do anything extra. And Monero is really that for me in the cryptocurrency space where I can feel, especially as somebody who puts out pro-privacy education and who people look to for advice around these things, I want to only advise people to use things that will protect them well by default. Even if they have no idea what they're doing, even if they make mistakes, I want it to do the best possible job to protect them. Um, so Monero does a very good job at that. And other things like Bitcoin or Zcash, they don't. They, they really allow users to shoot themselves in the foot. They have poor privacy defaults. Um, A recent analogy, which isn't perfect, but one that I've kind of been thinking of recently is that like Monero is kind of like signal and Bitcoin is kind of like PGP to email. You can use email privately with PGP. It's possible. It's very hard or not very hard, but it's it's difficult. It's time consuming. It requires know how, um, but you can do it privately. Uh, And then Monero is more kind of like signal to messaging where you just jump in, you start using it, you gain strong privacy guarantees no matter what.
0: I love that and I think a lot of people in our community are going to also really agree with you there on how like the defaults are so important for them as well as the people around them because then they don't need to even understand what the tool does. Mm -hmm. And so that's something we push for as well and I think that it's excellent that that's one of the core reasons why Monero is such a useful tool. One question that I guess is more critical on my end and I'm sure a lot of people ask the same thing is why does it need to be cryptocurrency? So what, um, is there a way for us to have the benefits of an Monero without cryptocurrency? And um, I guess where does that fit into things? Like explain to someone like myself who I guess I've just kind of learned to accept that, yes, this is the way you have to get financial privacy, but is there a way to do it without cryptocurrency? And why is the blockchain a part of all of this? Why is it part of this discussion?
1: Hmm. That's, a, that's a really good question. Um, I honestly haven't really considered that before. Um, But I I think the reason why I see something like Monero specifically as a cryptocurrency being important as opposed to other ways to gain financial privacy. um, Well, I guess let's step back. So like I consider cash a very, very useful tool for privacy. Um, Yes, it has some potential issues with if your money's inflating or other things like that, where you have problems with the money behind it. But the actual tool of cash is a, a useful tool for privacy. Um, but the problem is cash is uh, not only going away. Countries are trying to get, to get rid of it um, as soon as they can. It's getting harder to use it. More and more merchants aren't accepting it. Um, and obviously, if you wanna buy something on Amazon, you're not gonna ship them a, um, a, an envelope stuffed with 500 bucks in cash. Like you're, you're gonna, you need to pay them digitally Um, And much of our commerce, much of the the things we buy and sell happen online. So we need a tool that can enable payments that can't be easily surveilled. Um, And there have been some interesting attempts to do this in a a centralized way in the past without uh, a blockchain. Um, And even some some very old attempts uh, like David Sholm's Xiaomi and eCash way back in, I think it was like 82 or something like that. Um, He came up with this idea of doing a centralized version of this where there's one central party that can issue the currency and and manage it. But then the users do gain strong privacy. Um, And it's a, it's an interesting approach and it, it could work, but the problem is we're not in a, we're not in a society where privacy is, is valued or widely accepted. And we're, we're currently really in a a war on privacy. Um, Governments, uh, big tech, they want to prevent privacy because they want the data that we have. They want data on what we do. On who we are on who we interact with um, and because of that we need a tool that can resist attempts by those groups to to shut it down to prevent its use um, and if there's a single company or person behind a, a privacy tool like that like if i went and created some some type of xiaomi and ecash and the government knew that i was the one who created it and they didn't want people using it they just come to me and shut it down and it would go away um, and so when you introduce a blockchain and, and this kind of decentralized consensus method, which is truly really just a way to, to keep balances, to keep accounts without a central party deciding things or having control, it makes it much more resistant to, to shut down. I and mean, you can think of things like um, torrenting networks are a great example of it's something that goes against kind of the normal social paradigm, I'm not saying good or bad of, of torrenting in general, but it goes against that that paradigm and so Uh, Governments have tried to shut it down, but they've failed miserably Um, because of its decentralized nature. They can't really stop it. Um, And you can also think of maybe a similar approach in the privacy tool world, something like uh, the Matrix Protocol. um, Where yes, there are other ways to do chat that are are centralized and work well, like Signal is a a great example of that. Um, But if the government decided they don't want people using Signal, they could go to Signal, shut down their servers, confiscate them and Signal would be gone. We couldn't use it until someone spun up servers. There's some ways we could try to do it, but it'd be, it'd be much trickier. Um, but with something like the Matrix protocol, which is is federated and, and so decentralized in that way, if they tried to shut down like the matrix.org server, many people already have other home servers up. You could just jump on one of those. Um, you can run closed networks of matrix servers where you're, you're interacting with other people. Um, you gain a lot of resiliency from that decentralization. Um, so that's where something like Monero benefits from being a cryptocurrency and not just kind of a centrally issued currency.
0: Got it. Okay. So what you're really highlighting here is censorship, resistance, mm-hmm. decentralization. Those are the two big things. And also guess transparency too, that comes along with that. Yeah. Um, I really like how you compared signal to matrix. That's what I was thinking in the back of my mm-hmm. mind the whole time. Um, and I guess just the thought that I got while you were saying that was I think decentralized projects, can get ahead really quickly. Mm-hmm. I think it's much easier for your centralized project, like Signal, to build a really polished, easy package for people, Yeah, but they're always at the risk of the things you are talking about, censorship and things like that. And there's always ways that they can work around this, but mm-hmm. if ent- and encryption ever does become an evil entity in people's minds, mm-hmm. and it ever becomes outlawed in countries, I mean, it's gonna be hard to keep Signal alive, but there's nothing you can do about Matrix. so. I guess the long-term vision of going that decentralized model is not something that I've considered before. So I think that might be a big selling point for Monero that I just haven't considered that. Like, even if it's not as fast as something else, if it's not as good as something else, if we're talking about how it's designed not to be shut down and how it's censorship resistant and all these other things you talked about in 10 years, we might have, we might come out on top.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And there are other, like I'm focusing there on the, the benefits to it as a tool for payments, but there are also other economic and monetary benefits to doing it in a decentralized way.
0: Yeah. Well, why don't we cover those? Because I don't really know much of those.
1: Yeah. So, And this kind of boils down to a lot of like the reason that Bitcoin was created. Um, and, and there's a lot in common between Monero and Bitcoin and, in these ways. But, but ultimately that decentralization also means that there's no central party who can just decide to print a billion Monero tomorrow. They can't just wake up and say, I want to have all this money for myself, or I want to just uh, flood this onto the market to reduce the value or anything like that. There's no ability for a single person or entity to control the monetary supply. Um, so we can avoid things like uh, the inflation that we're seeing today, where it's it's rampant across the world. And it's because of the the things that uh, central entities like the Fed and the U.S. have, have chosen to do to try to to push the economy the way they wanted to push it. Um, obviously, I don't think they wanted hyperinflation, but they've been messing with the monetary supply and it can have effects like this, um, like the things that we're seeing today. So when you decentralize that, you, you allow building this social consensus and then building it, it in a technical level where like for Monero, there's only 18.4 million Monero initially. And then from now on, and we actually just at this point called the tail emission, which we won't dive into today. But from now on, for every, uh, minute of Monero's existence there will be 0.3 Monero um, emitted and that's to help secure the network. Again there's a lot more we could get into there but um, that means that I can know for sure that the Monero that um, I may or may not have is x percent of Monero's supply until year 2040 or whatever I I want to say and and that lets me have faith that the the value of my Monero and the, the purchasing power is not something that can be stolen by a central entity through uh, issuance or inflation or something like that. So those are some of the economic benefits. Um, and then like you mentioned, I think another key one that I didn't touch on much, but you mentioned is, is censor- it's censorship resistance. So that's, there's no central party that can decide, I don't want Seth for privacy transacting on Monero. So he's banned and he can't do this. Um, no, one can, no one has that control, no one within Monero, um, no central entity.
0: So um, you talked about inflation and I wanted to ask um, about the volatility of monero do you think the volatility of monero is a problem because i feel like if i'm recommending someone to put their money into monero i mean they could lose their money tomorrow or they could get twice their money back tomorrow and so and i guess a broader question if we can take it to there do you see monero as being a privacy tool or do you you see it as being a currency that people should use day-to-day because right now the volatility might prevent it from being a day-to-day use tool but you probably have a lot more context and nuance to really break this down
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a it's a hot topic and has been for for cryptocurrencies since their inception, Um, because like you mentioned, the the price of Monero versus the dollar or whatever kind of fiat currency you want to compare it to is volatile. Like that changes rapidly. Um, Even recently, like you mentioned, we had a, a big drop in the price of all cryptocurrencies. And like there was a project that's building on Monero who had banked on Monero's price being consistent or rising. And because Monero's price dropped, um, they had to kind of pause a piece of the project they're working on. Um, and so this volatility is, it's real, it affects us, it affects people actively using Monero. Um, it affects Bitcoin, uh, all of them essentially, because they, they really move as, as a market and oftentimes with the kind of conventional markets, because many people do just use them for speculation. Um, which I think is sad because I don't think that's the key benefit here, but um, that is certainly a way that people have used them in the past. Um, But I I think for most people, cryptocurrencies are not a thing that should be used as kind of the I'm betting on it increasing in value exponentially and I'm going to get rich by putting money into Bitcoin, Monero, whatever coin you want to name. And that could happen. And there are incentives built into these tools that uh, will hopefully enable that as a mechanism to secure them long term. Um, But ultimately, they're not things that are guaranteed to increase in price. Um, So for most people, I'm not of the, like, uh, store of value camp as much as I am using it as a method of exchange. So, like, for Monero, for instance, um, if you just want to use it as a a privacy tool, you don't need to put all of your life savings into it all at once. Um, You can instead, just as you need, maybe you you realize that uh, a few of the things that you buy online or in person accept Monero. Um, Maybe you can just find somebody near you who will sell you Monero for cash or some other method. You can buy... The amount of Monero you expect to use that month or whatever and then just top up as you need and just keep slowly transitioning some dollars into Monero to be able to spend and not banking on that going up not being ruined if it goes down but ultimately just using it as that that privacy tool rather than as a kind of a long-term store of value. Um, that said like there uh, like I said there are reasons why a long-term store of value is a valid use case for these and, and could work long-term but it's, it's certainly not something that that I focus on and that's the more risky part. Um, And that's one of the reasons why I love Monero and I love the community around Monero because they're very focused on the actual usefulness of Monero as a tool and not on just price speculation against the dollar. They care about people being able to to get this in their hands and use it to escape financial oppression, to uh, escape authoritarian regimes, to make payments that um, people might not want them to make for whatever reason. Um, or just to gain reasonable privacy when they're transacting. I mean, I'll be doing anything that's against the against the government or against the regime, but they just want to be able to spend money without worrying about that data coming back to bite them at some point, or that data being collected by a, a credit card company and used to profile them, etc. Um, so yeah, ultimately, I think my focus is on using it as a tool for privacy, but it does have good monetary factors that could make it a good long-term store of value. But that's obviously the riskier side so if people so
0: far are listening to you and they're asking themselves okay how do i get into monero Um, how do i use this in my day-to-day life i guess what would you recommend they start with Um, do you have kind of get started steps what can they expect out of monero when they first get involved what should
1: they not expect i think initially just trying to figure out are there things that you buy or use online that it, it makes sense to use monero for um There aren't a lot of in-person merchants that you could use Monero for, unfortunately. Um, That is getting a little bit better, but that's obviously, that that takes a lot of time to get people in brick and mortar stores to accept Monero. Um, But there are a lot of really good services online that accept Monero. Uh, Things like IVPN, who I love. Uh, You can use Mulvad with with, uh, Monero. You can use um, Tutanota with Monero. You can pay for these kind of privacy-preserving services with the money that preserves your privacy. Um, And so give them less information about you as well. Um, But outside of that, I think just trying to figure out are there other places or other services that accept Monero today or that you think you could talk into accepting Monero um, and and allowing you to spend it. And if if there is a a use case for you, and I'm I'm not saying everyone should buy Monero, or maybe even everyone can right now, um, but trying to find places where you you could spend it or convincing merchants to accept it. Um, And then once you do that, if you have places you can spend it, you have have services online you want to top up with Monero, um, the best ways to get it generally are things like local Monero, um, which is a way that you can essentially buy and sell Monero directly from other people. Um, so it's what's called a, a peer-to-peer exchange, in that you can do things like face-to-face cash, where you just meet it with someone in a parking lot and give them some cash, they send you some Monero, um, in a way that is trustless, like they can't steal your money and you not get the Monero, etc. Um if you already have something like bitcoin which i know is going to be a smaller portion of listeners you could go through again local monero and just swap directly online between bitcoin and monero um, or you could do like cash by mail on local monero as well bank transfers there's there's a lot of options to do that but the beauty of a th- uh, a service like local monero rather than using a, a centralized exchange like uh, for instance in the u.s kraken is that you don't have to give or, give over your id and, and leave this evidence that you have bought Monero. Um, thankfully with Monero, if you do use an exchange like Kraken, when you withdraw it, they lose visibility into that. Kind of like when you withdraw cash from an ATM, your bank knows you withdrew $500 in cash, but they have no idea what you did with it afterwards. Um, so that is a benefit, but it's it's best whenever you can to, to not have that link that says, uh, X person bought X Monero on this day and withdrew it.
0: So how about like actual get started steps? Like right now, someone's listening to this, and they want to open a new browser tab while this episode is still running, how are they gonna do that?
1: Yeah, so the best place to kind of get started with Monero to learn more about it, to find lists of um, wallets that support Monero and work well is to go on just getmonero.org. It's kind of the, it's the website we as Monero contributors run. It's again, not a centralized thing. Um, There's no marketing budget behind it or anything like that, Um, but we work together to to build and and create this site, Um, and it gives you some educational content, links to getting involved in the community itself, Um, and maybe the most useful for getting started is uh, just jumping in and finding a wallet that fits your specific use case, Um, because ultimately with these cryptocurrencies, you need a a wallet app that'll let you essentially hold those funds and be able to to send and receive. Um, So like for Monero, I think a lot of people should start on mobile because it's it's often the kind of most user friendly um, approach and that could be using something like uh, like cake wallet and that's in both app stores iOS and Android and you can just install it um, it has a very simple user interface uh, there's also a great android only wallet called Monerujo, uh, which is m o n e r u j o it's hard to hard to say it and people understand how to spell that when they're going to an app store but Um, that's a great Android only mobile app as well. Um, and those are usually the best way for people to get started. Um, there is like a simple desktop wallet as well that's available directly from getmonero.org. Um, that can be a good way to, to get started, but one of the most important things to mention is that if this is your first time touching a cryptocurrency, one of the things that all of these wallets will prompt you with when you first create a wallet is they'll give you something called a a seed phrase, and it's going to be this list of 24 words and essentially those are your your keys to your funds there. Uh, so whatever you do, make sure that if you actually send or receive Monero there, you save those 24 words immediately. Um, and usually that's something like writing them down on a piece of paper and putting them in a, a safe you have or putting them in some place you keep important documents or something like that um, to make sure you don't lose it. Because one of the Drawbacks and benefits to cryptocurrencies is there's there's no one who can control or access your funds, but that also means if you lose your use your phone and you don't have that seed phrase, you've lost all of your Monero. Um, so it's it's very important that you you do that and treat that um, as something that is worth whatever amount of Monero you end up putting on it.
0: Fortunately, with all the media coverage out there that's so negative towards cryptocurrencies, <laughs> we've actually received enough media coverage for I think the normal person to know the horror stories of not saving your seed (laughs) phrases and stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah. So always save your seeds. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, I think probably my last major Monero question before pivoting over to privacy tools is going to be, what are the drawbacks of Monero? Is there a possibility of, um, and this is a a concern with lots of privacy tools, including Signal and some of the most trusted tools. In 10 years, will all the stuff we're doing now matter? Will these things be broken? Are they gonna be able to secure these things in the future? What are the long-term concerns of using Monero? Because right now it seems pretty bulletproof, but what are some of the issues there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think on a non-technical level, I think the biggest problem with Monero right now is there's not there's not a, a ton of places to spend it. That is rapidly getting better, but for it to be a useful tool for privacy, you have to actually be able to use it. So. Obviously, like this, the simplest drawback to something like Monero is unlike cash or unlike a uh, credit card, which obviously is not private, but it's a way people spend money. Um, it's not going to be accepted everywhere. So it, it, you're definitely going to have a more selective uh, group of places that you can spend it, which is a, is a drawback because it's not like other privacy tools around finances that leverage like uh, pseudonymous credit cards or, or uh, anonymous debit cards or something like that where they're still spendable everywhere. Um, so I think that's a big drawback for people generally. Um, as far as uh, technically, I think some of the the difficulties with Monero can sometimes be the, the user experience. It's a relatively small community who are mostly technical. Um, and so we don't have a ton of people who are, are non-technical or who are new to cryptocurrencies actually using these things and reporting back their experiences reporting back the pros and cons of actually using the tools. So it can take some time for us to get things to be very user friendly. I think we're at a pretty good place right now where most people can can use it and not have a lot of problems. And one of the beautiful things with Monero is you don't need to do anything extra to gain privacy unlike other cryptocurrencies. Um, and so if you can kind of grok the basics of using something like a, a cake wallet on your, your Android or iPhone, um, you're gaining privacy at the same time without the extra steps. Uh, but user experience sometimes can be a, a hurdle for people. Um, Long term, I mean, again, one of the things that I love about Monero is they're very committed to continuing to iterate and improve over time. Um, so it's not something where we're we're stagnant and stuck in the current approach to privacy or the current approach to, to security. Um, so. As things change, as new research comes out, um, as new techniques for tracing or things like that happen that could break down some of the benefits of Monero, uh, we're going to find ways to fix it and we're going to iterate and improve Monero itself as a tool. Um, So that's something that I think gives a lot of long-term peace of mind because you you know that we're going to be doing everything we can to make sure that this tool continues to work long-term. And there's been a lot of thought put into actual security approaches behind Monero that differ from things like bitcoin um, that provide I think some better assurances of long-term security for the network and things like that. Um, so I, I think long-term maybe the biggest drawback would be that this is still a fairly new field so there's a lot of unknowns about the the long-term implications of some of the choices being made um, around cryptocurrencies like bitcoin or Monero um, And so there is some uncertainty and like if uh, especially like quantum computers, if if quantum computing actually becomes the thing that a lot of people predict that could be very problematic for cryptocurrencies like Monero, um, where they rely on normal uh, standard computing cryptographic assumptions, where if there's a quantum computer that's actually useful and can do the things that researchers want them to do, that could be a problem for um, tracing within Monero. Uh, I think those are some of the the main drawbacks but i think the the ones that people would feel the most are uh, merchants not accepting it that they may want to um and ultimately that gets fixed by people who have merchants that they love going to them and telling them hey i love monero i want to be able to spend it but you don't accept it here are some ways that you can um and there's a, a push going on right now in monero to kind of help drive that process um, but ultimately it comes down to people because we're not a we're not a central company we don't have millions of dollars lying around to to drive a marketing budget or anything like that. Um, so it comes down to people resolving that. Um, and then the same thing with the, the user experience, ultimately the way that it gets improved if you run into problems is like, please, please, please report it. Like if you're using a wallet and you run into an issue or something is just not making sense, um, figure out through that wallet, through their page on the app store, through their website, a way to actually report that, email them, open an issue on GitHub, whatever the approach is to getting help, tell them that issue. And once they know it, they can actually try to fix it or change the the user experience to improve that as well. So a lot of the long-term things can be helped by users, like maybe listeners in the in the audience right now, um, chiming in and doing what they can, um, even if it's a small five-minute thing to, to help out. Super
0: cool. Thank you for the breakdown. And I'm hoping that that really helped answer people's questions about Monero much better than I could. So thank you very much for that. Yeah. Um, now pivoting over to privacy, because you mentioned that you don't necessarily love the cryptocurrency space and you seem to be mainly focused on the privacy side of things. So what got you into privacy and are there any, yeah, let's just start with that. What got you into privacy? Was there an aha moment? What's your story?
1: Yeah. I mean, like I mentioned at the very beginning, a lot of kind of the, the roots of my story actually start with Monero and the community around it um, because they cared about personal privacy and kind of took me under their wing and showed me why it matters, it kind of started to open my eyes. I think kind of the ultimate things that, that tipped the scales for me were Snowden's book, and I was very late to this party, both with Snowden stuff and, and just personal privacy, and um, had never really dug into it, um, but then read, uh, I'm, I am for some reason can't remember the name of his recent book or Permanent most recent Record. book, Permanent Record, yeah. Um, I read Permanent Record when that came out, um, and it really kind of shook up my view of how governments and big tech work together in many cases, or um, ultimately are, are working against you and are working to to consume your data and use it um, in ways that don't benefit you as an individual generally. Um, and so I think that was a big wake up call starting to finally realize like some of what he had revealed and what had been shown through the, the Snowden revelations. Um, and then I think the second kind of thing that that opened my mind and and got me thinking was a a documentary called Nothing to Hide Um, and I actually had forgotten about this until we were at MoneroCon and we actually had the the creator of Nothing to Hide who also just created a a documentary called Disappear there and I was able to just interview him briefly before his film showed and I I never connected the dots but Nothing to Hide was a film that he made um, where uh, an actor friend of his he essentially wasn't too keen on personal privacy, didn't really care. And he talked him into letting them track him for a month on both his phone and his laptop. Um, and basically said, we don't wanna know anything about you, but we're gonna, we're gonna obviously assign all these legal forms and do everything the right way, but get this access to your phone and laptop. And at the end of the month, we're just gonna have a couple analysts look through the data and see what they can find out about you. Um, and they were essentially able to tell him very intimate details about his life the places that he went what he was doing at 4am who he was with um, a lot of these details about his life that he never realized that the companies he was giving access to his data had the same visibility that they had a lot of the same um, ideas about who he was as a a very personal individual like not not at just how he spent his money but like who his deeply intimate friends were um and that I think opened his eyes and, and there's that film Nothing to Hide was a, a big piece of showing me how like the, the big tech side of things like I think Snowden's revelations were more governmental um, oversight and surveillance and then Nothing to Hide was a big kind of eye opener for, for big tech and for the, the visibility into our lives that we give them and what that can be used to, to ascertain about us that we have no idea we're even giving them that information.
0: Well, there you go. There's two media recommendations from Seth. <laughs> Nothing to Hide, the documentary, and Permanent Record by Edward Snowden. So definitely go check those out. They're probably going to be both great for everyone listening to this. What eventually led to you developing your blog and then eventually your podcast? So Seth has, and I'm sure you can talk about this more yourself too, mm-hmm. but he has an opt-out podcast and um, he actually invited me on there and he's I'm the first interview he had on the podcast. So mm-hmm. do you mind talking about the blog, the podcast? and Your journey in becoming an educator yeah I mean
1: uh, the blog which is sethforprivacy.com if anyone wants to read that um, the blog ultimately started just out of being very tired of making twitter threads and wanting to (laughs) to do things a little bit more long form with candy points yeah exactly (laughs) very tired of that and like I try to be a very nuanced and detailed person so when I look into something I'm not just going to share a very high-level overview. Like, I want to break down all of the, the nitty-gritty details and let the person who's reading the content I create really make a well-informed decision out of it. Um, and a platform like Twitter is, is just terrible for that. Um, I actually enjoy Twitter a lot. I think it's the best social media platform we have out there right now or at least the best centralized one. Uh, obviously, it has lots of flaws. But I think it is a powerful platform. Um, but obviously, for things like long-form content, it's just it's terrible. Um, so ultimately just started, I had things I wanted to say and I didn't want to write more Twitter threads. Um, but then I had a, a good friend in the Monero space who had kicked off his own blog and he does a lot of uh, security writing. He goes by SirHack, S-E-R-H-A-C-K. Um, and we were chatting and he was just talking about how he had started his own blog and the actual like technical tools he had used to do it. Um, and gave me inspiration to just jump in and, and take a stab at it. Um, so it started off being more... Cryptocurrency focused because it, it kicked off more when that was uh, my focus rather than personal privacy um, And it still is probably more uh, Cryptocurrency focused and specifically Monero focused um, than other things, but there is definitely some um, Privacy content. I think my favorite piece for privacy on there uh, is, is um, Something like uh, first steps towards privacy, which basically I tried to take a look if I was to approach personal privacy from scratch today, what are the ways that I or what are the changes that I would make in my life and what are the tools that I would use for that? And, it, and in the personal order that I would do it, um, obviously, the steps that you take and the approach you take to personal privacy is very um, it's very individual. So it, it will be different for you or could be. But I, I thought it would be helpful for people to see kind of the main things that I would have focused on if I had known all of these things going in um, and the order I would have done it in. Um, so that's kind of how the blog started and, and I definitely still write on there and try to put on more and more content. Um, but then the podcast really was just started out of consuming lots of good pro-privacy content and, and some good uh, Monero-focused content. But just seeing that there were conversations that I wanted to have that maybe weren't people weren't having and there were people that I wanted to talk to that I knew I wouldn't have the chance unless I had something like a podcast. Um, And a lot of the inspiration came from tech lore uh, and just the things that you've been doing here and the the content you've been putting out has been immensely helpful for me in my personal privacy journey Um, and I just saw that I thought that there's a way that I could contribute to that because I think there is kind of a there's kind of a dearth of very very good approachable pro privacy content out there Um, there are good content creators I'm certainly not saying that but they're just I felt like there needed to be more and I felt like I could fit into a niche that would be helpful for people. Um, and so, like you mentioned, started out last June with the first episode, which was chatting with you. Uh, very thankful you you were willing to come on and, and chat. That's awesome. uh, Just coming in blind there to a, a brand new podcast. Um, but I I think it's been a really fun journey. I mean, ultimately it's, it's crazy that I get to have conversations with people that I deeply respect and that I've learned from and just ask them questions and learn from them. Um, and ultimately, like my approach is I'm going to ask them things that I, I find helpful for listeners, but also that I just I want to learn. I want to learn about them. I want to learn about the tools that they use. I want to learn about their their personal privacy journey. Um, and in the second season, which I just finished up, I kind of went tool by tool in some of the main tools within the privacy space and try to talk to the people behind them and get a better insight into what they are, who they're useful for, what they do. Um, and then how the projects themselves are sustainable, how people can contribute back, that kind of thing. So that's been the focus there. It's been a it's been a blast. It's definitely not something I've ever planned on, and it's, it's outside of my comfort zone. But I think it's been something that uh, has gone well so far that I've, I've really enjoyed. So hopefully people have found it useful as well. Um, and it's been it's been great to hear that people have benefited from it in their own personal privacy journey, which is a, a very humbling thing. So thankful for that.
0: I love all of it. Um, I think that what you're doing is awesome too, and the interviews that you do are just so well done. I don't know if people tell you that, but you're a good interviewer. And for those listening, he's interviewed some like really big people in the space too. And so if you're interested in seeing some really cool interviews from some of like the services you probably all use, check out the Opt Out podcast because he has some really great interviews there from some great people.
1: And I guess kind of the... Is there anything else you want
0: to share with our audience before we start winding things down? Just a,
1: a constant thing that I run into in the privacy space is just the people who do wake up feel very swamped with, like, I have no clue where to start. Like, it just feels overwhelming. And I think, like, you do a great job within tech lore, but maybe just a reminder that when you see these issues and you see this need in your own personal life or the life, lives of your family or friends, take it slow. Like, take, it, take your time, preserve your mental health, um, take things uh, one step at a time and make sure that it's not something you just dive into headfirst. I mean, the same applies for Monero as well in that um, it can be very, both time consuming and just mentally taxing to dive into this, the whole cryptocurrency space and all the things happening there and taking it slowly and just starting very simply um, has been very helpful for me. And then I think has helped a lot of other people be able to, to create a sustainable journey towards personal privacy um, and not burn out very quickly.
0: Love it. Yep, we always say privacy is a journey. Mm-hmm. It's not a weekend hobby. (laughs) So I love that. That's your, that's your approach too. And so where can people find you?
1: Yeah. So the, the main, well, really the only social media place that I'm at is uh, on Twitter, uh, just at Seth for privacy on there. Um, And again, that's personal privacy focused and cryptocurrency focused. It kind of ping pongs back and forth with whatever I'm kind of focused on at the moment, but there's always a privacy bent, no matter what I'm looking at. Um, That's always a, a key aspect for me. Um, and then outside of that my blog like I mentioned set dot um, if you want to get in touch all of my contact info is is there um, there's like an about page and you can you can see my email uh, a signal number matrix ID uh, whatever way works for you to, to reach out I'm always happy to chat with people and walk them through things or just learn more about you or learn what's been helpful um, things you've learned from from tech lore or content I put out and um, always happy to chat there as well but those are probably the two best places for myself and then for my podcast, Opt Out. Um, it's at optoutpod.com. Um, so you can go there, listen to episodes. It's on every uh, podcast app as well. So feel free to, to browse on those as well. But website has all the show notes and um, information about guests and that kind of thing
0: we'll have links to all that down in the description check it out thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate having you on we've been trying to get this going now for months <laughs> and our schedules just never aligned and yeah. so i'm glad we actually got to do it in person because this is now our first ever in-person interview we've done yeah. so
1: thanks for coming on yeah thank you so much i mean like you said i know it's been a, a bit of a hassle mostly on my side to get this <laughs> scheduled but i'm glad we're able to, to sit down and chat and like i said just so thankful for the content you have put out and the the key piece of my privacy journey that that it's um, been—it's—it's it's really a key reason why I'm here. It's why I created the podcast. Um, so just ultimately, very grateful for the the time and energy that you poured in. Uh, and I know it is not easy to put out content like this. Uh, I've learned that learned that myself personally, um, and so just very thankful for that. Thanks, Pat.